In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, if you weren't with us last week, we began a little series in which we're focusing on the family, uh, in this case, the Holy Family. Last week, we talked a little bit about Mary, and today we're going to talk a little bit more about Joseph. In, uh, in Lewis Carroll's Christmas classic, Through the Looking Glass, um, the White Queen advises Alice to practice believing six things before breakfast every day. And I always think at this time of the year, that's good advice for Christians as well. I mean, how else do you prepare yourself for this preposterous story that we are about to uh, hear in a little over a week about how God decided to leave heaven for earth and traded in all of that power and might for diapers and a pacifier? Or how his mother couldn't really tell why it had happened or how it had happened, except that her mother's, his mother's husband knew for sure he didn't have anything to do with it. Which brings us to Joseph. So Matthew, Matthew tells us that Joseph was a just man and a kind one also. Whatever he believed about his fiancée, he was not willing to shame her, either by putting her to public trial or by muddying her name in order to keep his name clean. So he resolved not to divorce her, or he originally to divorce her, um, not to put any blame on her. And he was on the verge of doing just that when suddenly the same angel who appeared to Mary last week started whispering in his ear, giving him several impossible things to believe before breakfast. And Joseph was never quite the same. So Joseph's whole sense of right and wrong gets lost in this divine shuffle. His righteousness gives way to God's, which is no small step. He decides to trust what an angel told him in a dream. In other words, he listens to his heart. And so he takes Mary home to be his wife. So what does that make Joseph? Is Joseph a father? Is he a stepfather? Is he a husband? Is he a friend with no benefits in our current language? Um, Christian tradition has never been really sure what to do with Joseph in part because we never know what to do with stepfamilies. Think how many terrible stories there are about stepmothers, some of them in our favorite children's stories. When Kathy and <clears throat> my oldest daughter Molly and I were becoming a stepfamily, I made a point of going and interviewing as many stepfathers as I could to find out what am I getting myself into. One of the things I discovered is that blended families typically don't become a blended family in less than four years. Because when they're starting out, blended families are typically really a grouping of smaller families. However, I do remember taking comfort in thinking of our story this morning as the first blended family in the Bible. Of course, we don't learn very much about how they blended because Joseph drops off the scene uh, soon before Jesus' baptism. 
which probably supports the whole idea that he was already an old man before he took Mary as his wife. If you study religious art, that's exactly what you will see, this grizzled old man who has lost most of his hair, dozing off by the side, his chin on his walking stick. In some paintings, he, uh, he's holding a slender candle in his hand, protecting its fragile flame from the wind, while the wife and the child glow with this celestial light. He's always lingering just beyond the edge of this golden sphere that envelops them. The kindly old man, the extra in the drama that stars Mary and her child. But not in Matthew's Gospel. In this story, it's Joseph in the spotlight. This old man in a brown homespun robe, sort of like the way you would picture the hunchback of Notre Dame, or Bill Davenport at a vacation Bible school playing the part of Moses or David or some New Testament disciple. So here is Joseph lying on the pallet when all of a sudden he hears the same angel's voice, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. He will save us. So you see, if the Messiah is to be born the son of David, then this is the man to whom he must be born. The prophets say so. Matthew goes to great lengths to persuade us that the prof what the prophets foresaw has come to pass. So this is it for Matthew. It's the Annunciation to Joseph. Mary has no lines. There is no Magnificat. There is no let it be to me according to your word. You see, according to Matthew, this whole grand experiment hinges on what happens with Joseph. If Joseph believes the angel, then everything is on. The story can continue. Mary will have a home and a family, and her child will be known as the son of David. But if Joseph does not believe, then everything grinds to a halt. If he wakes up from that dream and goes down to the courthouse to file those divorce papers, then Mary is an outcast forever. She is either going to be killed by her family for bringing shame upon them, or she is going to be disowned by them and forced to scrape together a life for her and her child however she can. The child is Joseph's until he says otherwise. Whether or not his own seed is involved, he becomes the child's father at the moment he says so. Because the issue at stake is not biological, it's legal. If someone says, this is my son, he is so attested. That's how the Jewish law reads. So the question is, will Joseph claim the child or not? Will he believe the impossible and give him a home? Or will he stick with what makes sense and let the miracle go hungry? According to Matthew, Joseph's trust is as crucial to the story as Mary's womb.
God and all of the angels are on her side, but it takes both parents to give birth to this remarkable child. Mary to give him life, Joseph to give him a name. Jesus, son of David. So today in our modern society, of course, teenage girls get pregnant out of wedlock all the time. Mary's predicament undoubtedly loses some of its force. But the heart of the story, you see, is much bigger and more profound than that. The heart of this story is about a just man who wakes up one day to find his whole life is in shambles. His wife-to-be is pregnant. His trust has been betrayed. His good name is ruined. His future has been revoked. It's about a righteous man who surveys a complete mess that he had absolutely nothing to do with and who decides to believe that God is present even in that mess with every good reason to disown it all, to walk away from it in search of some clearer, more controlled life with an easier, more conventional wife. Joseph decides not to do that. He claims the scandal as his own. He owns it. He legitimizes it. And I think there is a word there for you and me today because so often we treat Christmas as though it were just an escape from the real world. You know, the business that isn't doing as well as it could or the health problems that don't ever seem to go away or the issues in our family that keep haunting us or in a church or the business as usual in Washington and Lansing. And Christmas with the candlelight and the beautiful decorations and the familiar old carols, that seems to provide a wonderful escape for us. But just read the story. Jesus didn't come to whisk us away to Never Never Land. He chose to come into this very real, very messed up world. In fact, his coming in some ways brought more mess, not less. I've been reading some of the Christmas cards that some of you have sent to us. Thank you all for sending those. And the most common word that you find in those Christmas cards is peace, which is appropriate. Isaiah said that Jesus would become the Prince of Peace. And yet if you listen to that story and the angel's announcement to Joseph that Mary has a baby and it's not his, you might wonder what kind of peace it is that this baby brings. Did you note the angel's first words to Joseph? Don't be afraid. Which is not the same thing as saying there is nothing to be afraid of. Why would the angel need to say that to Joseph? All the angels that I see in Hallmark, don't tell, uh, don't tell Gail that I said this, but all the angels that I see in Joseph, they're a little mushy, um, but fear is not the word that comes to mind when I look at them. And yet the angel says the same thing to Joseph as he said to Mary last week, don't be afraid. The predominant nativity emotion is actually not peace. It's not joy. It's fear. Maybe we should light a candle for fear. 
peace on earth, the angels sang. But this was no easy peace. It was peace that brought disruption and struggle. Just ask Joseph or Mary. Did you know that the angel's announcement, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, is almost a direct quote from the prelude to Caesar's royal proclamations that were read in the marketplace in any occupied territory. Glory to Augustus Caesar, God in the highest, and on earth peace to those with whom he is well pleased, and presumably hell on earth to those with whom Caesar was not pleased. You see what Luke is doing here? This is not some, some beautiful little birth announcement. This is a war chant. There is a new king in town. The government will be upon his shoulder. That's why the wise men, when they told Herod about the new king, Herod was greatly troubled. That's why the wise men had to go home by another way. In Jesus, God wanted to set things right from what we had messed up, and apparently that couldn't be done without some God-induced disruption, turning things upside down. And Joseph, you see, owns the whole mess. He legitimizes it. And that mess becomes the place where Messiah is born. Do you see? This quiet, peripheral man over in the corner, the one with the candle wax on his sleeve, he is the one to watch because he is the one in the story perhaps most like us, presented every day with circumstances beyond our control and lives that are perhaps not the ones that we would have chosen for ourselves and constantly tempted to divorce ourselves from it all. When an angel whispers in our ears, don't be afraid, God is here as well. It may not be exactly the life that you planned, but God can be born here too, if you will permit it. And there's the real shocker, right? It's that if again, that God's yes depends on our own, that God's coming into the world not just then, but today requires human partners, a Mary and a Joseph, a you and a me, who are willing to believe the impossible, who are willing to claim the scandal as our own and adopt it and give it our names, accepting that whole sticky mess and rocking it in our arms. And do you understand that that's not just you and me alone? It is the whole church of God who at this time of year look at a broken world that is so messed up and we say, yes, God can be born even in this mess as well. So Joseph awoke from a sleep. He did as the angel commanded him. He took her as his wife. She bore a son, but he named him Jesus.